This is PRN, your as-needed dose of medical knowledge. I'm Alana Castro-Gilliard. And I'm Chandler Davis. This podcast provides general information and discussion about medicine, health, and related subjects. It is not intended and should not be construed as medical advice or the practice of medicine. The views expressed herein do not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Adward via College of Osteopathic Medicine or any other institution or employer. On part one, we left you on a bit of a cliffhanger, so we're going to rewind and reintroduce Dr. Khan. Hi, I'm Dr. Khan. I am an ICU doctor. I'm also an osteopathic physician. I help pre-meds get into medical school despite having low scores. I also have 800 other jobs at the American College of Chest Physicians, and I love what I do. Now we're going to fast forward back to talking about Dr. Khan's free master class. Can we talk a little bit about that and what it's like? Sure, yeah. So, um... I actually, I have a free master class um, that anyone can register for and teach the three mistakes that pre-med students make. And I, I teach them how to get into medical school despite having low scores. So I, I do a deep dive into those three mistakes. But one of the biggest things I talk about in there is your identity. And you're currently identifying yourself as a pre-med student and you're weighing it down with these scores and you wrap your identity and who you are as a person and just you there's so much meaning behind your MCAT score and your GPA that that makes you this pre-med student and in my master class I teach them how to pull out of being a pre-med student and thinking about themselves as a future doctor because when you re identify yourself as a future doctor, it becomes inevitable. Or being a pre-med student, there's so much failure around that that identity. Like, oh, well, that pre-med didn't make it. And even your professors, when you first start science classes, they're like, oh, ha-ha, all you pre-med students, look to the right, look to the left, look in front, look behind you, only one of you is going to make it. Right? We've all gotten that stupid spiel. So there's yeah. already so much... <laughs> there's already so much... Failure identified into calling yourself a pre-med student. So I sort of switch it and I say, call yourself a future doctor because it's inevitable in in that labeling, in that identity, that it's not just a matter of being pre-med. It's a matter about being a doctor and, and that's your future. So I think that's one of the biggest things for resilience is like pulling who you are as a person out of your scores. Like you are not defined by your scores ever, ever. Like that is, you're still an amazing human being. You are not your scores. doesn't mean you're a terrible doctor. You know, even my intern year, my intern year in internal medicine residency, I had so much imposter syndrome. I felt like I didn't deserve to be there. I barely got in. There were so many med students who really, really, really wanted that residency spot, and I was one of the quote-unquote lucky ones, and I barely got in, and some people questioned, like, why I even got chosen, you know, during the match, and I took that to heart, and I scored the lowest on my in-service exam um, out of all, all the interns, and I felt terrible, and I just felt like I took this spot away from someone else who maybe would be better in this position or um, that 
like I was just going to crash and burn throughout. But obviously, like, I had experienced this as a pre-med. So I eventually pulled myself out of that, and I re-identified myself as, like, well, it's not it's not about me comparing myself to my peers right now. It's about me jumping into my journey and really learning internal medicine for my patients. I went back to my big why. Like, why did I even start this whole thing to begin with? And it was, it's all, it always goes back to the patients, right? And your love for your patients. So I eventually pulled myself out of that. And then the following year, I scored the highest out of all three years. And imagine if I uh-huh. had just, yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's obviously a lot of hard work, but you know, when you're, when you're that low, just know that it's not going to get lower. You're just going to keep growing and going higher. Yeah, so it sounds like uh, all you future docs out there need to go check out the female doc <laughs> on Instagram and uh, check out her 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 master class. If you're if you're a pre med and you and you just want to talk and I I can analyze your your chances of getting into medical school. So just on Instagram, you can DM me the word pre-med, and that'll get you started. Love that. And a lot of things that you're sharing sound like growth mindset, which is very important for success in medical school. I'm just going to put a plug out there for there's a video called, um, I think it's Grit, the Power of Passion and Perseverance by mm-hmm. Angela Duckworth, and she talks about growth mindset. And it's without a doubt, whenever I'm feeling imposter syndrome, the first thing I go to to feel better about myself. <laughs> yeah, that's, so a, that's an amazing question, resource. It is very good. We we will put all of the resources at the end on our Instagram posts for everyone to look at after and everything that you've recommended. Um, so back to your social media, you've talked on social media also about not feeling valued at work um, and leaving a job because of it. Do you have any tips on how we, especially minorities and females who often feel undervalued, can make sure that we're feeling valued? Yeah. Oh, that's that's such a great question. I love talking about this. This is my jam. When it gets into racial and gender <laughs> dynamics in the workplace, like, this is it. Because um, I, I kind of discovered this really early on, um, and especially in, in critical care. It's like a male-dominated field. In, in my first job out of fellowship, I was the only female in the group. And that's not going to, that's not uncommon. You know, a lot of people don't understand that although med schools are, you know, 50-50, there's they're, they're still only 30%, out of the practicing physicians, only 30% are female um, in in the United States because there there's a huge generational washout that, that needs to happen. But right now it's still a boys club. Like same thing with Silicon Valley, right? Like they're, they're still male-dominated. <laughs> So I, I think the a few things. So the first thing is just being aware of how you could be treated differently and understanding implicit bias within the workplace. So as a female, I knew that statistically I would be more likely to be asked to take notes during meetings or um, be expected to provide coffee during meetings. Um, I would... Uh, be spoken over, I would be more likely to be called a nurse. So once you're aware that that dynamic is in play, then you can start to work backwards and protect yourself. So 
because I knew that, I became much more aggressive in negotiating my salary, my contracts. Um, there was this amazing study that was done out of Carnegie Mellon where they looked at uh, MBA, freshly graduated MBA students. And they looked at the the students who actually negotiated their first job out of their um, education, out of their MBA. And 57% of men negotiated their first job contract, and only 7% of women negotiated that same job contract. So because I had the awareness of the statistics and that knowledge, even though I thought my first job out of fellowship, that contract was very fair, very fair market value, and it was like a ginormous amount of money compared to (laughs) what I was making as a resident and a fellow, I knew statistically that women weren't going to ask for more and that statistically men were going to. So I made a decision to negotiate and I got, um, I actually ended up negotiating an extra $25,000. Wow. Just because, yeah. <laughs> that is not a small amount. <laughs> no, it's not. And I did it so lightly. It wasn't even aggressive negotiation. I sent them an email and I said, I I really like the hospital. I think this is a really good opportunity for me. But is there any way that you can make it a great opportunity? I didn't talk about numbers. Wow. I didn't talk about anything. Yeah. And that's the thing is like the their court. <laughs> yeah. They know that there's going to be a negotiation. Statistically speaking, that's what happens. And I use that to my advantage. And they came back and they're like, okay, we'll give you another um, fifteen thousand dollars on your sign-on bonus and add on ten thousand onto your salary, and I was like, "What?" Just because I asked, <laughs> yeah. And so, so wow. even even in um, in my academic practice, every quarter, every quarterly meeting I had with my director, I would ask her about a raise, <laughs> and she she would always say no. She always said no. <laughs> <laughs> but but guess what? I didn't get fired over it, you know, and, and soon yeah. she started to expect me to ask her, and she would preempt it with, like, all right, Rosie, like, this is what's going on with the department budget and blah, blah, blah. And, but I I knew what was going to happen. And then same thing in meetings. I knew that women are more likely to not sit at the actual table, which is kind of where that term comes from, like, take a seat at the table. Um, and they would sit on the side little chairs. But then because I knew that that is what beha- behavioral psychologists have documented, I was like, I'm going to sit at the table. So I sat at the table and I'm really loud and <laughs> not in an obnoxious way, but <laughs> my, I definitely voiced my opinion. And I've learned strategies like that. And so. Yeah. So these are these are very practical ways that you can protect yourself at work and it all starts from just knowing statistics and what actually happens and like I talk a lot about that on my blog and Instagram and like that's my jam. Same thing with racial biases like you know as a black woman if you're going to voice your opinion you're more likely to be perceived as angry. And so if you know that you can create strategies around it to 
And, and and that's the thing is like you don't actually have to box yourself into like well now I have to succumb to that stupid stereotype. No, you get to make a decision on your strategy. So you can lean into that and be like, you know what? If they call me angry, then they call me angry. Or you know what? Maybe I'll I'll try a different tactic and be do the fake smile, nice, sarcastic, undertone kind of thing. So you get to actually choose how you want to be perceived in that moment, right? It's not like it's not like the implicit bias in the workplace can can and will define you. You get to pick and choose what you want to do and what strategies you want to use and when. And it's all about practice. Like there's no there's no messing it up. Because you're always yeah. learning. Thought, and and there's always gonna be another job. Doctors are always in demand. And that's the thing. That's, it's unfortunate that we have to think about like strategies to get around it but if that's the reality of it it's good to know the statistics and how we do get around it yeah yeah and and we get to choose that so it's like you know there's times where I'll just be like you know what I know um that I'm more likely to be dismissed for this particular idea so Sometimes I'll t- ask my male counterpart, like, hey, I have this idea for the ICU because I was a co-director in the neurosurgical ICU. And I'd be like, why don't you talk about that? Or can you get the data or something like that? And I would lean on other people to maybe get me that data, even though that, that, that upsets me because it's like, why wouldn't I be able to do that? But I would flip-flop between different trying different strategies and to getting what I wanted to accomplish done. Um and that's that's what's worked for me anyways. And and part of that too is feeling valued, right? Like because our voices aren't heard or because our voices if depending on our race are interpreted as, you know, angry or oh, like Latinas are feisty, right? Oh, she's just got so much fire, right? The like, amount of times that I have heard that. My last name is Castro. I am Puerto Rican. And the amount of times that I've heard that I'm feisty, it's, yeah. it's honestly quite, it's it's distracting because I'm, if I was something else, if I was a man um, and I said the same thing, they would never call me feisty. They would say, oh, he's passionate. And right. So exactly. now when people call me feisty, I've learned to say, I mean, is it feisty or is it passion and logic? You decide, you know, kind of yeah. thing. Um, yeah. Give them a different that. term that doesn't bother me. Yeah. Um, I love that. But Yeah, and, and I think that's the thing is we need to know that we are, as physicians, I, I think because there's so much scarcity in spots of medical school and there's scarcity in residency spots and there's scarcity in fellowship and we're constantly trying to prove ourselves to these programs that we carry that habit into the job market. And that's where our minds need to flip. Like, you are now the double board certified expert. You are the one in demand. You are the one in control. Hospitals desperately need you. You don't need them, right? I, as an, it's, it's been especially nice as an ICU physician seeing how, a little bit of the culture has shifted and, and society is actually starting to revalue us. Just physicians in general, like we're now frontline heroes, which is incredible to me and it's so humbling. But I mean, we've been doing this for decades. That's how the profession was built, right? Just the respect was lost when, when there were a lot of litigations and, and 
systems in place that didn't create the best workflow for patients. So I get it. I get that, like, we have a healthcare system we need to fix in this country, but you are definitely more valuable. So when I was unhappy at my job, I didn't feel like I didn't have options. And a lot of my colleagues were like, why are you, you need to line something up before you quit this job. And in my mind, I was like, I am in such high demand. I have, there's locum tenens work I can do. Like I can jump straight into that. Um, there are a ton of practices that are always looking for a fresh ICU physician. And the the irony, too, actually, I want to talk about this a little bit, is as a female, we're always worried about, um, you know, family planning. Like, I know a lot of women are just like, well, I want to have kids, and I want to lean out, and I want to do this, and so maybe I won't do a fellowship, or maybe I won't, you know, go into something as high demand as surgery or something. But it's actually the opposite, is when you become so subspecialized, so I'm internal medicine, critical care, and neurocritical care. And I did all of that because, like, and I, I still don't have children. I want children, obviously. But, like, if I would have leaned out and decided, okay, well, I'm going to plan for these phantom kids that I don't have yet, and I would have just stopped at internal medicine, I probably wouldn't be in as high demand as I am as super specialized. And so because of that, I've created more value for myself, and I can drop a job whenever I'm unhappy with it. And I I don't need explanations in GAP. I don't need explanations in in um, why I left a particular job because hospitals are so desperate for me that they honestly end up not caring. And then if, if it, there is a hospital system that does care, then I'll just move on to the next. You know, physicians are in yeah. such high demand, such high demand. Like you will always have a job. And we have definitely learned that in, during this pandemic where it is so unfortunate that there are so many positions and jobs out there where people have just, like, lost it or they've gotten rid of it or companies have completely shut down. But we are the nurses and physicians and, like, respiratory therapists, anyone in the, in the healthcare profession, we have, like, serious job security. Definitely a good reason to go into medicine is uh, the reason that you always have job security. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and truthfully, what you're saying really rings true because I've done one rotation so far and almost every evaluation that I've gotten, they're telling me, you know, well, what do you want to do? And I've said, like, X, Y, Z, I'm not really fully sure. I know that these are my interests. And I always wonder if they tell my, like, male counterpart the same thing that they tell me, which is, well, do you want to have a family? You have to think about whether you want to have a family or not. That's going to impact your choice. And I'm always curious as to whether they only say that to me or if they say that to everyone. Because, you know, no, they, they never feedback. say Yeah, they never say yeah. to men. No, that's, I can tell you which for sure. They <laughs> never say that. And it's just so ironic because right now I men also want to have men. families. Exactly. <laughs> Men want to hang out with their so kids. I think it's, they should say the same thing because it's almost a benefit for men to also be hearing the same thing. I know that my partner, he definitely wants to have kids and wants to have a family and it's something he's thinking about. Right, right. And it does, it, it takes a long time to become a doctor. 
them. And often, you know, you feel that you're missing out on big parts of your life, whether that be relationships, wedding, family life, et cetera, because we're traditionally using our 20s to train and become physicians. Um, do you have any advice on how to process and cope with what students often feel as losses in their life? Yeah, it's so funny because a lot of the losses that you may mourn become so unimportant later on as you grow. So, for example, I missed, you know, weddings. I missed um, baby showers, things like that. But what I did maintain were those friendships. And they've had other life events that I got to celebrate with them. And what's nice is I get to celebrate with them in abundance now because I have a fulfilling career. I am financially stable. I get to spoil their kids with lavish gifts. <laughs> you know? And so fun I get to... <laughs> I'm definitely a fun aunt. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> but it's it's so nice because you all of that sacrifice is a thousand percent worth it. It's a thousand percent worth it. Because you just live your life in a different way and and you approach life events with so much abundance and there is no loss. Like most of the loss in your twenties you feel like are you know, your friends getting married or they're starting to buy houses, they're putting down roots and you are still traveling all over the United States desperately trying to get into a fellowship or a residency or whatever it is and moving your life and living away from your family. And, like, sometimes it can get lonely. Um, But afterwards, you start to see that you have lived not, like, a more fulfilling or less fulfilling. You've just lived a different life that is yours. And it's very unique and it's really special. And I think some of that goes back to comparison culture. You know, I see my friends with two kids now. And, of course, I, I like, I want to be a mom, and I think about, oh, my age and two kids and all this stuff. But then, again, I start to think about possibilities. Like, well, I could meet the love of my life, and he could already have two kids. Or, you know, I can adopt. Or there's just so – because now I have money. I have money. Like, And I, I think a lot of physicians forget, or they or, – or especially, you know, first-generation kids or – immigrants like we just don't know what that's like to get paid a lot of money and make six figures and it's a it's you'd be surprised at how far your dollar can go and if you make smart financial decisions early on you can really set yourself up for um financial abundance which you know i and it's not that like my friends are struggling or anything because they have good jobs but they also have maybe sometimes limited freedom on going on like a lavish vacation or something. So they're also comparing themselves to me. A lot of my, you know, like my mom friends right now are just like, man, I wish I was living the life in Chicago, (laughs) just, you know, going to happy hours whenever and and sitting by the pool because they're also missing out on, on that piece of life because they have responsibilities. And you look at them and you're like, oh, I would totally trade it all to just, 
you know, cuddle with my kids and hang out with my kids and, and, and have that family life. But they also look at you thinking like, wow, I'm burnt out. I need a break. This pandemic has been terrible on like my relationship or my kids are so it's the grass is always going to be greener on the other side. And at the end of the day, you can't change any of that. You just, it's just your own special journey and you just have to have faith that it'll, it'll come to you. It'll fall into place. Um, and maybe it'll happen later. Maybe it'll happen in med school. You know, I, a lot of my classmates got married and had kids and, you know, went through all of that. So it's just your own special journey. And what are you going to do? Like complain about it? That's, that's, you know, like it's not going to get you anywhere to think about what you could have had. That's not very productive. It's just, it's not empowering at all. When you think about, oh man, I could have, I could have been married by now. All the good guys are taken or, I'm too old. And I think a lot of that comes from our cultures too. Like I'm Pakistani and you know, you said you're, you're <laughs> Latina. So it's just yeah. women are expected to get this stuff done early. And, and it's, and it's not only the expectation. I think a, a lot of us also, when you grow up in that culture, you kind of see that and you want to mirror that. And naturally I do want to be a wife. I want to be a mother. And these are things I do want to do. And, but I don't, I have moments where it's like I'm lonely and I'm sad about it, right? I don't look at it as like I'm completely missing out on life and and all of this because uh, my friends don't get to say that they had a phone call where they got to tell someone's wife like, "Hey, your your husband is doing well. We took him off the breathing machine. He's going to FaceTime you soon. He survived COVID." You know, they don't they don't get those those life moments and, and we do. I've got chills <laughs> thinking about that. Yeah. I yeah, it's it's like I carry my patients with me, like all the time. Those those really wonderful memories and keeping a journal actually helps if you if you want some practical advice. Like writing your really great moments and, and documenting that so you can look back on it on a really bad day. Like I will never forget him. And I still remember the date. It was March 28th when I liberated him off the ventilator. He was the last COVID patient in the ICU. This was during the first surge. <laughs> I mean, now we're on the second surge. But, yeah, the first surge, he was the last one. It just, it was just such a joyous moment. And he was on that ventilator for, like, two and a half weeks. And he woke up, and he was just like, what's up? When can I call my family? And we were just, <laughs> we were so thrilled. And, you know, we got him to FaceTime and he got to talk to his family. And I had been talking to the family like the whole week. Just they were, they were so worried. And I kept telling them like, oh, he's getting better. I promise with baby steps, he's getting better. He's just slowly, slowly, he's still dependent on life support. So in their mind, they're just freaked out. And so when they finally visually got to see him actually improve was such a special moment that only I, me and my team got to experience, right? Like people who didn't go into medicine don't get to experience that. Yeah. And, you know, I'm sure that you can talk about this um, with my next question as well. Um, You know, as a DO student, I kind of have to ask, how does being an osteopathic physician now contribute to your success and the success of your patients? Does that tie into anything you've been talking about? Yeah. I 
I think the osteopathic philosophy is so profound and you know, it's it's been so interesting because when I talk about osteopathic medicine and being an osteopathic physician, you know, we talk about it as holistic care. And so sometimes pre-meds don't fully understand it, but there's also this huge hands-on component that as osteopathic medical students, like you probably under, understand a little bit more deeply now. And, and just alternative medicine to, to the body having the ability to heal itself. Um, and like... I've had certain MD students message me and they're like, no, but we also approach it very holistically. And I'm like, no, 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 you don't understand. It's like an alternative approach and it's hands-on. It's like hands-on healing. And I guess at some point people just think it's like weird and woo-woo and spiritual. (laughs) But that's what makes it so special is it is spiritual. It is woo-woo. (laughs) but we have the whole other bucket of like actual, you know, modern medicine. But when my family members will sometimes come to me and say, Hey, I want to try these herbs. Or I had one patient say that she wanted to put avocado down her mom's feeding tube because it's healthy for the brain. And it's just, it's just so interesting how I'm just, I'm open to that and I I I try to accommodate as much spirituality and alternative medicine into my practice as possible in conjunction with families. Like I'm never going to say like hey let's I don't know you know let's do some osteopathic manipulative medicine in the ICU because it's just there's just too much going on but when people approach me about that and I'm always open to it and I And one thing that's really, I think a lot of people miss about critical care is that it's not all just heroism. Like what, like what you see on Grey's Anatomy with, you know, the paddles and the shocking and the emergencies and leaping in, you know, my program director from fellowship, uh, Dr. John Arapello, he said this to me once and it's always stuck with me that real heroism in critical care is preventative medicine. And it's slow, small steps and and small things that you do on a daily basis that helps your ICU patient. You know, there's that that saying, hurry up and wait. (laughs) And And it fits completely into the osteopathic philosophy in that allow the body to heal itself. Allow the body to respond to what you just did. And stop flip-flopping between Lasix and fluids, Lasix and fluids, you know. So it's just, it's an, it's a, it's more of a mindset, even if we don't continue on using our hands, um, with osteopathic manipulative techniques with our patients. It's, and it's, it's been so wonderful to have that background knowledge, especially when it comes to critical care. And, and people might not think that it, it, osteopathic medicine applies in the ICU because like game over there's no more preventative medicine but it's allowing the time for the body to heal and and that patience and that waiting and understanding how the body's resilience and how there's a spiritual component mind body spirit and bringing in the family member's faith into conversation you know in med school you were kind of taught like not to talk about religion or keeping it very neutral and 
I have learned from my practice that that is a terrible way to approach it because almost like 90% of people believe in God in, in some, some shape or form. And so why not bring in faith in that hopeless moment that they're experiencing, like on the worst day of their life where their loved one is in the ICU? Yeah, chaplains are certainly a great addition to hospital yeah. teams. Yeah, yeah. It's, so, it's been a little bit during COVID too that you know we, it's been limited. They're not coming I'm in sure. anymore, and, and so I have to play like eight hundred different hats right now. Um, but it's it's been fun and challenging. I love it. <laughs> so you're the chaplain, the palliative care team, the hospital <laughs> yeah. team. Yeah, the ICU doc. Um, so. Just wrapping things up, I know I've taken a lot of your time, but I've really enjoyed this conversation. I do like to finish up with just some general advice for any future doctors out there now that we're reframing our mindset. Um, do you have any general advice for all the future doctors? Yeah, define your own journey. Keep going. Don't Don't compare yourself to others. You're on your own special journey. You have your own path. You have your own purpose. And if you need help, you can always reach out to me. You can DM me pre-med and we can have a whole discussion. Um, and, yeah, you don't have to fit into a box. Your journey doesn't have to look like everyone else's. Well, thank you so much for having this conversation with me. I've learned so much. Oh, my pleasure. This is super fun. For more PRN, please be on the lookout. If you like this episode, tell someone about it and start up a conversation. I'm Alana Castro-Gilliard. I'm Chandler Davis. And this is PRN.